Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. This is Climate One, and I'm Greg Dalton. The numbers for moving the economy from fossil fuels are big, really big. It will cost $44 trillion to get the carbon out of the U.S. economy, according to federal experts. But spread that out over many years, the tab may not be as high as it sounds. And Citibank says that failing to act on climate disruption could hit companies and governments with $44 trillion in losses, give or take, over the next 25 years. The economic stakes are huge. And on the show today, we'll explore the downside and upside of getting off fossil fuels and plugging into the sun, wind, and other sources of renewable energy. Our guests are leading economists and a Silicon Valley investor. Lord Nicholas Stern is a former chief economist of the World Bank and one of the foremost global experts on moving the economy from fossil fuels to cleaner energy. When world leaders signed the historic Paris Climate Accord last year, Lord Stern was cheering in the front row right <laughs> alongside Al Gore. Steve Wesley leads a venture capital firm that made early investments in Tesla, where he served on the board, and the biofuel company Amaris. He currently holds positions in Good Eggs, Planet Labs, Revolution Foods, and other companies pursuing more sustainable capitalism. Steve Wesley was an early executive at eBay and is a former controller of the state of California. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, welcome, both of you. Uh, Nick Stern, take us back to Paris. You were there, had a ringside seat at a, one of the most historic agreements ever where co countries came together, companies were present. What was, give, us, give us a peek inside Paris, how it came together. It, well, it felt like being in the ring as well as having a ringside uh, seat. Th this was a few years in the making. Um, the diplomacy from France was very good. The preparation... Uh, the year before in COP20 in, uh, in Lima was, was very good. But it was founded on a deepening understanding of actually the issue we're going to discuss today, which is the attractions of moving to the low-carbon economy. The risks, I think, had been gradually understood 
over time. Just how devastating it could be to move to three or four degrees. We haven't been at three degrees. I'm talking about centigrade now. Warming since post-industrial times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's average global surface temperature relative to, say, the second half of the 19th century. It's okay to use centigrade on NPR? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Americans have a little difficulty, yeah, yeah. but they'll, they'll deal with anyway, it. Anyway, <laughs> what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that, that people had deepened their understanding with the scientists and others and, and, and public radio, helping people understand the huge existential risks from climate change. But what had changed ahead of Paris was that um, people had started to understand what the transition looked like cities where you can move, cities where you can breathe, uh, ecosystems which have much greater chance of survival and doing much uh, more for you. Uh, The discoveries and inventiveness and creativity and innovation was already uh, clear to many people. Examples of cities changing the way they're doing things, business changing the way they're doing things, and doing very well as a result of it. So for me, the key change was the understanding of the real attractiveness of the alternative route. The investments that you make, you shouldn't see uh, as quotes, costs, you should see them as investments with very powerful returns, not only in reducing the terrible risks of climate change, which is fundamental, but also in terms of the way we live and building a much more attractive uh, and more productive way of living. Steve Wesley, as an investor in Silicon Valley, how did you look at the Paris Agreement as a significant uh, milestone in the move toward clean energy? Was it just politicians talking or was it meaningful? Well, it's it's clearly a big step. And it's a big step because you had leaders from literally countries in every corner of the planet all coming together and saying, this is the new future we're moving forward into. What's exciting to me, and you should all understand, there's a confluence of two things going on. First, there's a global political movement towards sustainable energy, combined with, really for the first time, new generations of breakthroughs in clean technology. And it's happening across the board, whether it's low-cost solar, affordable electric cars, uh, low-cost power storage, which has really been the missing link of uh, power storage for solar and wind, to, to affordable LED lamps. We're heading into a sustainable world. And if you think about it, we're that close to having a world where you may not be having to pay a penny for electricity at home if you buy low-cost solar that's now at parity with carbon fuels. You may not even be paying a penny for gas ever again. And when you're not paying for electricity or gas, wow, that is a whole new world. And we're working on inventing a large part of it right here in California. Steve, tell us about when you invested in Tesla, there were 27 uh, employees, and, and what your wife thought about that investment. Well, yeah, no, I came home and I told my wife, you know, I've just invested in this new company. There's this guy, Elon Musk, and, you know, 27 guys in a warehouse in San Carlos, and we're going to revolutionize the global auto industry. And she said, you've lost your mind. Go get your money back. <laughs> um, and in the early days, it was not at all clear what would happen. But the fact is, and our first car, frankly, wasn't so hot, but by the time we got to the Model S, people said, wow, it was car of the year, safest car ever made, best performing car, highest reviews from Consumer Reports. It kind of showed people you can make an electric car that's transformative. But the narrative is always moved forward by the naysayers. Okay, okay, it's a great car, but 
It's a plaything for the rich, plaything for the rich. Play th- so fast forward 24 months, we know what the world's been waiting for. And the, the narrative is people won't buy electric cars. Here's some easy numbers for you. Roughly 400,000 electric cars in the world, 200,000, half of them in the United States, 100,000, half of those here in California, 400,000 total. What the world's been waiting for is a low-cost electric car, read $30,000 or less, that goes 200 miles to deal with range anxiety. Tesla announced that car two weeks ago. Guess what? They've taken orders for 400,000 in the last 10 days. So doubling the entire world total in orders in two weeks. So this narrative that people don't like electric cars, you can't predict the future by looking backward. You can only predict the future by looking forward. And again, I'm kind of excited because we're inventing a lot of it here. Invented in California. Nick Stern, you spend some time in China at the highest levels of government. And tell us what you've seen in terms of EV adoption in China. Because the story has been if, if the middle class in China gets a family car, they fry the earth. Yeah, the, the pace of change. In, I've been working in China for nearly 30 years, India for more than 40. So let me give you electric car reports back from both those places. Um, I was at the China Development Forum, which is a very big gathering of senior China uh, economic leaders and the heads of big companies of the world, whether they be Ford Motor Company or HSBC or Bombardier or, or whatever, DuPont, and they're only the chairs and CEOs go. So at the end, we go and meet the... I'm not one of those, but they have a, a, a dozen or so economists who come and do a cabaret and try to be interesting. And <laughs> the, so we all go and meet... Uh, big big meeting with the Premier at the end of that and uh, the head of Ford Motor Company set out the activities in China, what they were doing and Li Keqiang, Prime Minister, listened carefully and uh, he said, you know, um, the sedans, the the cars essentially that uh, you predominantly make have five or ten years in China and after that it's the electric car and uh, we hope you really participate strongly in this but I should mention that there are three or four Chinese firms are moving rather quickly in this direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very telling. And that's a big signal. Uh, you know, that's Prime Minister of China to head of the Ford Motor Company. Now, and we all know that Ford actually are developing electric cars, so maybe they'll rise to that challenge. Piyush Goal, the um, minister, he's got a very, very interesting title of power, coal, and renewable energy. It's a nice bundle in one sentence. And um, he said in the signing ceremony for um, the Paris Agreement on April 22nd, Earth Day, I I was speaking there, along with Al Gore, as you mentioned. We tend to end up in the same places. And he said that they are now in the Indian cabinet looking at the possibility of insisting that all cars sold in India from 2030 should be electric. And at the same gathering, just an hour or two later, Bill de Blasio said that within a few years he wants the entire New York City uh, city fleet of cars to be electric. So that's, for me, that was within five or six weeks, Chinese Prime Minister, the uh, Indian Minister of Power, Coal and Renewable Energy, and the Mayor of New York. And they're all talking about entirely, entirely electric cars from some date 
not very far away. We don't know how fast that will go, but that's going very quickly, and this is global. And then, uh, about two weeks ago, I was with Anand Mahindra, they're a very big company in, uh, in India, at the London launch of um, an electric car for about $15,000. 15,000. Now, it's not as fancy as a Tesla. It's not meant to be, but it's going for a different market. Absolutely not the plaything of the rich. Steve Wesley, can the American and global auto giants adapt to this? Your response to that? They're, they're already adapting. And here's what I wanted to throw out. There's one race that's more exciting than the U.S. presidential race, and, and <laughs> even more exciting than Lester's uh, race to win the b- b- Premier Cup. And that's the race to drive the cost down for lithium-ion batteries. This is the ultimate big money race. And you should just know, and there are numbers that guide all this. This is not a Democrat or Republican thing. It used to be about $1,500 a watt to produce lithium-ion batteries. It has gone down, down, down. And when you get below about $300, you can make electric vehicles that will blow away the competition. We're getting very close to a yeah. point And LG, Kim, and Korea is talking about a sub $200 a watt lithium-ion battery. Mr. Musk is building the Gigafactory, which I think will be the second or third largest building in the United States after the Pentagon and the Boeing plant. If any of you have been to a Costco or a Price Club, it's about 100,000 square feet. Uh, This thing is 12 million square feet. So it's the size of 120 Costco's over a mile long. Uh, Mr. Musk is serious about producing lithium-ion batteries, but this is full-on competition to replace what has been part of the global oil industry, what powers cars. And one of the questions is, Korea going to win, the U.S., Samsung? This is the race to be watching, and I'd submit it's a good race for the health of the planet. Absolutely. And Toyota are putting a lot into hydrogen. And uh, I'm rather with Steve. I think it will be more with the electric. But it may be for heavy goods vehicles. Uh, It may be that um, we'll be creating uh, the long-distance travel through hydrogen. But the fascinating, exciting thing about all this is how much creativity. If you pose a question strongly, and one thing we have done over the last ten dozen years is to pose the climate question strongly if you pose it strongly you get a response and the creativity has been absolutely extraordinary steve wesley what's the future for oil companies they have funded a lot of campaigns to slow down this transition uh now that paris brought the world together there was a big corporate corporate america was there in paris uh what's the what's the impact of the transition for oil companies ahead do you think so, you know, I used to teach on the faculty at Stanford's Graduate School of Business and spent a lot of time on this issue of corporate strategy. The oil companies are in a pickle, and they're in a pickle for two reasons. Let me just say it flat out. You're seeing renewables at parity with oil, and the cost of renewables only goes one direction. That's down. And they're not, by and large, polluting. The world is moving that direction from a pure cost efficiency status. You throw in that global leaders are pushing things that way, and it's just going to happen quickly. But the whole second part of it is there's this other shift, and we're just starting to talk about it, and that is the shift from baby boomers like me, whose whole life has been about, we've got to get the biggest TV we can, and then the biggest car, and the biggest house, and then you throw it all out, and you get a bigger one. That's going away. By January 2017, millennials become the biggest buying cohort in the world. By and large, 
they don't like oil companies. So here's the punchline. I was just talking with a friend uh, at Exxon. I said, well, how's the oil industry? He said, oh, no, we're Exxon Gas. <laughs> we're not, no, 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 we're not, we're not, the oil is, uh, that's, that's the past. Pretty soon, I want to suggest to you what I think is going to happen is the smart oil companies will diversify into renewables and other sources. They've got very deep balance sheets. The less smart ones will hang on for dear life, and they, I suspect, will go the way of dinosaurs. Steve Wesley is a former board member at Tesla Motors, former controller of the state of California. We're talking about clean energy transition at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my other guest is Nicholas Stern, former chief economist of the World Bank. Uh, Nicholas Stern, on a country level, Saudi Arabia is looking at something comparable. This week, they announced a $2 trillion sovereign wealth fund. $2 trillion. They have a young prince who's in power to try to move the economy away from uh, petroleum to... Is that for real? And what are the global economic prospects of that? I think one of the remarkable things is how countries like Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia in particular, have seen the way the world is going. And they know that uh, their asset uh, is one which doesn't have much of a future. If we're to hold to two degrees uh, centigrade as increase in global surface temperature above the second half of the 19th century... If we're to hold to that, as we must, because it's so dangerous to to go beyond, then if we want the decent probability of that happening, we can't burn more than um, perhaps a third or 40%, depending how you look at the probabilities of success, of the reserves of fossil fuels that we already know about. They have to stay in the ground, or it has to be carbon capture and use or, or storage. So, in other words, those assets, if we are to hold to two degrees centigrade, which is what we've agreed in Paris, actually well below, um, are not worth all that much. So it's very important that we plan ahead to see how we can manage that transition in a way that uh, is uh, cheerful, positive, invests in the alternatives. And the oil companies have to see that. And it's a, what you just described about Saudi Arabia is a manifestation of them doing exactly that because they have to. And they are going essentially to be pushed in that direction across a whole front. Sometimes it's going to be direct regulation. But what we're seeing is something very significant is financial regulation. And the, the chair of the financial, I'd be slightly nerdy and fight technical you know, regulation of the financial industry, but you know, after what we've been through in the last several years, we all know why that matters. Um, they, the, the Financial Stability Board is the one that looks after exactly that internationally from the Bank of International Settlements. And the chair of the Financial Stability Board is Mark Carney, a Canadian governor of the Bank of England, and a very good one. And he asked Mike Bloomberg to uh, come up by the end of this year with a protocol for reporting of financial risk. To put your money in fossil fuel companies is a risky way to invest your money because of the reasons I've just described, that we can't burn all that anywhere near what we know already and stay within two degrees centigrade, the Paris uh, uh, commitment. So what Mike Bloomberg is putting together is a reporting structure for financial institutions on their climate risk, 
not only the insurance companies, which risk the buildings that they've insured being battered by the extreme effects of uh, climate, which they do, and that's a very big risk, not simply the risks of litigation, where you're held responsible as a firm for those emissions, but also, and perhaps particularly, the risk that the assets you hold, which have a strong, hard, a strong fossil fuel element in them, are not going to be worth very much. And that's a risky investment. And what Bloomberg is putting together for the world's supervisory financial body is a requirement to report on those risks. So the financial companies are going to have to know what the riskiness from the climate point of view and the commitment to fossil fuels are in the companies they invest in. That's going to be a game changer. Steve Wesley, uh, some people's response to this, keep it in the ground and the financial risk of fossil fuel investment that Nick Stern just mentioned is to divest. Do you support divestment, whether it's universities like Stanford or public pension funds like California, getting out of fossil fuels to protect their investments? It's going to happen over time. And I think investing in fossil fuels is not only a poor investment financially, it's a poor investment for the planet. But I just want to come back to a, a point we touched on before. Saudi Arabia is doing exactly the right thing to diversify its economy. They've been given this blessing of money, but they're smart enough to know that we're moving beyond oil. And I want to pivot here. What makes California great is we have a tradition of reinventing ourselves. We, we had a gold economy, a big gold rush. If we stayed with gold, we wouldn't be doing so well. But we learned to reiterate. And then we had a, a semiconductor boom. But we didn't stop there. It turned into PCs. We didn't stop there. It turned into software. Before we knew it, it evolved into the Internet. Then social media. We have learned through this extraordinary influx of immigrants to become adaptive. And I think really the saying of the age comes from Steve Jobs, who said, if you don't cannibalize yourself, someone else will. That is exactly what the Saudi royal family is doing. This oil thing is being minimized, by the way, not just by solar and wind, but by these extraordinary new technologies, think the Nest and so on, that help reduce, so it's not just new renewable energy, but it's dramatically reducing the amount of power you use. Between the two, it's putting the squeeze on oil. God bless them for diversifying. There's a debate that rages in the clean energy community about we need bold, big, bold breakthroughs, whether it's fusion or moonshots to discover big new things. And others say, no, if we just fund what we have today, we can do this. Steve Wesley, which one is it? Look, there, you want the most cost-effective thing possible. I used to work at the Department of Energy. Uh, Solar used to cost over $110 a watt. You're just not going to sell a lot at that level. Today, we're at $2 and heading down to $1. That's transforming the world. Who knows about fusion? I served on Secretary of Energy Chu's advisory board, and even he would tell you that may be a few decades. We don't have a few decades. We need to do the smart, simple things now. Jerry Brown uh, has been a global leader on this. California needs to continue to lead the way. There are a lot shorter ways to get from A to B than fusion. 
We're going to go to our uh, lightning round. We're ask some brief questions of our guest today. Nick Stern, former chief economist of the World Bank and chair of the Grantham Institute at the London School of Economics. And Steve Wesley, former board member of Tesla and a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle at Climate One. Uh, Steve Wesley, yes or no? Green products are still too expensive for many Americans. No. Ten years ago, maybe. Today, no. Nick Stern, in 2010, the G7 industrialized economies pledged to reduce fossil fuel subsidies. That's just a bunch of smoke, and subsidies have not been reduced since. I think you were part of that. They've uh, been reduced some. For example, um, I'm talking about the G20 now because the G7 is pretty marginal. Um, in the G20, India has used the world fall in price of uh, fossil fuels and oil and so on to reduce fossil fuel subsidies. Indonesia has a bit, but uh, they should go much faster. Steve Wesley, um, new nuclear power plants have a place in a decarbonized economy. It's very difficult to get nuclear in the new world for three reasons. And again, this has nothing to do with Democrats. Number one, they're extraordinarily costly, $10 billion a throw, and they take at least a decade to get up. Number two, no one wants them in their backyard. And number three, we still haven't figured out what to do with the nuclear waste. That is not the long-term solution we need. The future of nuclear powers in China, um, they're going to invest probably in 100, 150, roughly one gigawatt power plants over the next 15 years or so. That's where we're going to learn about the future of nuclear. Nicholas Stern, the U.S. Congress has slowed down global movement toward cleaner fuels, yes or no? Um, <laughs> probably yes, but the... Okay. Uh, meddle in U.S. politics a little no, bit. But one of the wonderful things about the United States, which I say as an outsider, is it's got so many bits to it, like California, like uh, the wonderful firms like Tesla, Walmart, which looks very closely at its uh, supply chain, cities, you know, New York under Mike Bloomberg and Bill de Blasio. That, that United States is a complicated big place, and there's an awful lot happens outside Washington. You don't need an outsider to tell you that, but it's important. Steve Wesley, Californians concerned about climate change should eat less meat and animal protein. Yeah, this is hard for me because I like meat, but the short answer is moving into the future, we're all going to be eating less meat. We just need to. It's the right thing for the planet. Nick Stern, English pot pie is a bad for the climate. <laughs> English. I think you're not running for office. English pot pie. Beef stew, beef pie. What, oh, what okay. No, that, it's pie. A, that, it sounds <laughs> shepherd's like, pie. Is that okay? Shepherd's pie. Okay. That shepherd's pie American is... American mistake. <laughs> can I just explain shepherd's pie? Because it's quite... <laughs> <laughs> you threw me with pot pie, which is an American description of an English dish, which would be unknown to an Englishman. <laughs> shepherd's pie is when you take um, your... Uh, roast from uh, Sunday because you know we, we weren't always you know as rich as we are now, which is not as rich as you are. But so you you, you would have a roast at the weekend, and then you wouldn't eat it all, and uh, you'd grind it up, and you'd put it in a pie with potato on the top, and that's shepherd's shepherd's pie. Um, I, I very much agree 
with Steve. Um, we are going to have to eat less red meat, a move to chicken, a move to, to fish, a move to vegetables, will be part of this story and will be much healthier and fitter as a result. And, um, you know, if you feed um, uh, animals with oats for a very long time as opposed to eating the oats yourself or the soy or whatever it might be, that's a much uh, less efficient way of transforming input into output, whichever way you, you look at it. Um, <laughs> so there's going to have to be some kind of reduction. But the important thing is to describe to people what's in what they eat, including you know the the water and and what and the, the greenhouse gases, and let them make up their own mind. Nicholas, I, I've seen the future: kale pie, yeah, kale pie, big, <laughs> big. <laughs> Californian kale pie, California the, kale uh, pie. Yeah. Uh, Steve Wesley, venture capitalists are not as smart as they think they are. Absolutely correct. Um, Nicholas Stern, economists are people who don't have the personality to be accountants. <laughs> You've been meeting the wrong economists. <laughs> Let's go to a quick word association. Uh, I'm going to mention something, and you'll mention the first word that pops into your mind. One word. Uh, Steve Wesley, American coal. Over. Nick Stern, American politics. Complicated. Uh, Steve Wesley, Gavin Newsom. Uh, interesting. <laughs> uh, Steve Wesley, Koch brothers. Uh, wrong way. Nick Stern, American manners. It, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Last one, Steve Wesley, English manners. The best. Okay, how we do? I think, let's give them a round. I think they did pretty well. That's the end of our... And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Last year at Climate One, former U.S. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson said that climate change is not only the biggest risk to our environment, it's the biggest economic risk we face nationally. So if we can see the crash coming, why are we still flying into the mountain? Paulson explained why he believes our government has been so slow to change course. We tend to deal with issues uh, nationally when there's an immediate crisis rather than there's a longer-term issue. And the terrible thing about the climate change risk is that carbon emissions essentially, for all practical purposes, stay up there forever. So it's cumulative. So it, the financial crisis, as bad as it was, the government can come in at the end and do things that avoid the worst outcomes. The longer you wait here, the more costly and, and, and the more difficult it's going to be to avoid the worst outcomes. And also, we tend to deal with issues if we handle them at the national level better than the global. So here we've got the double whammy. The good news is I, I think we, we still have time to act to avoid the worst outcomes. And as public sentiment changes, you know, you have to be optimistic that we can get there because the technologies do exist today even. Hank Paulson, former U.S. Treasury Secretary and author of Dealing with China, visited Climate One in 2015. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. 
Let's talk about high-speed rail, Steve Wesley. Is that a good thing for California? And I want to hear Nick Stern talk about high-speed rail in, in Europe because yeah. that's much more popular there. Look, here's the issue with high-speed rail. I'm a big believer in public transportation. But you want public transportation, and it works great in dense urban areas. Think Western Europe, think Boston, New York, Philadelphia corridor, Japan, parts of China. We are a pretty large, fairly rural state. And the rub here is the initial budget, 33 billion, then it jumped to 60, maybe on its way to 100 billion. And we do not even know if we were to afford and pay for all that, what the annual operating cost on top of that would be. On top of all that, it's not clear to me that if we were to build it, and if we could afford it, whether using 40-year-old you know, bullet train technology is the right thing, or perhaps we might be much better off using something like the Hyperloop. My gut is, I think we should be reinvesting in uh, education and make sure that the time is right before, and the technology is right, thinking about a $100 billion project. Nick Stern, as an economist, tell, tell us about... High-speed rail in Europe, maybe it makes more sense there than it does this in California? Uh, it makes a huge difference to people's time. Um, I, I, we're not that good at it in the UK, but much better at it in France and Germany and so on, but also in China. And uh, about six weeks ago, I took the train there and back from Beijing to Shanghai, uh, about five hours, um, and I think it's roughly uh, New York to Chicago. Uh, you want to do that in five hours. You don't have to go to the airport. Um, don't have to undress. Yeah, you, 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 you sit and work quietly for all that time. I mean, it's extraordinarily productive in people's time and, uh, and, and convenience. So I, I, I think it's, uh, in Europe, been very good. In UK, I wish we had more. And in China, it's been absolutely extraordinary. Nick Stern, you wrote a book, Why Are We Waiting? As, you know, behavioral economics is a big thing recently. Uh, so tell us, there's so much information, abundance of facts. Why are we as individuals, as humans and countries, not moving faster when our planet's on fire? The key is to understand what's possible and that it's uh, extremely attractive. And I think that uh, in Paris, uh, the tipping point came where the 195 countries really wanted an agreement. It came when they understood that this is not only possible, it's also very attractive. So that's the uh, argument that we have to win. We have been waiting because that argument took a long time to gain traction. I think it's gaining traction now, but we have to demonstrate how it works. And the road from Paris is the road that demonstrates that the alternative way of doing things is cheaper, more attractive, more exciting, cities where you can move, cities where you can breathe. That's the key. And we're gradually getting there. It's picking up speed, but we're not going anywhere near fast enough. Steve Wesley, if the economic opportunity is so big, how come a lot of venture investors in Silicon Valley have pulled out of clean tech? They are not there. They got burned. They swaggered in and said, hey, we're smart. We'll figure this out. We'll tell you how it's done. They lost some money. And there's not a lot of money in Silicon Valley going into energy other than some software-type plays, Nest, et cetera. So is that accurate? Why is that? Well, this is why you need to be investing in our fund today. <laughs> no, look, the, the simple reason is if you look backward, people lost a lot of money because they came in too early. Just like if you saw one of the first mobile phones that weighed 10 pounds and cost $5,000, you'd say, 
No one's going to buy these crazy things. Fast forward 36 months, the cost goes below $500, the weight drops down below uh, a few ounces, and you sell a billion units. We're in that same point. I used to serve on the board of Tesla. The first car we had, the little Roadster, cost $120,000. I could get in. I couldn't get out. It was dreadful. (laughs) Now we have a car, $30,000, and it may become the biggest selling car in America. So the key is you look forward, not backward. There's an inflection point in every area of the economy, and I'm here to tell you we're hitting that inflection point in renewables now. That's a great thing for the economy. It's an even better thing for the planet. But Nick Stern, cheap oil is going to make that transition hard because when gas prices are where they are, Americans buy SUVs. Simple as that. One thing we learn from looking at the history of oil prices is that there's lots of fluctuation and not much trend. Uh, And we're going to see them go uh, up and down. Uh, But what you learn from looking at renewables is there's a very powerful trend downwards. So um, we're going to see those uh, oscillations, but um, basically um, renewables are going to replace uh, those other things. But I do want to pick up a point that um, you made about Nest, Steve. About 40% or more of what we have to do to cut back on our uh, consumption of fossil fuels 40%, 50%, depending on the estimates, but big, is energy efficiency. And we always jump quickly to replacing the fossil fuels, and we must. But a big part of that story is just using energy much more efficiently than we have in the past. And there's so many ways that uh, we can do that. Designing cities that work, and I keep coming back to this, but it's fundamental... Designing cities to, that work where you really can move around, we've got the right combination of, of public transport and uh, electric cars and cars that um, link up. And the distinction between public and private transport is going to start to get fuzzy. That whole story of using energy much more efficiently, Nest is a good example of that, is absolutely fundamental. So we have to do in our argumentation much better than simply talking about renewables versus fossil fuels, important though that is, because energy efficiency, the way we organize ourselves in cities, is such a big part of the story. Steve Wesley, what are some real exciting areas where you see big breakthroughs, whether it's food, energy, et cetera, efficiency? Where where are we going to see some real cool innovation? Let me just give you two quick examples. One What Nicholas said is absolutely true. People do not realize how much energy is just plain wasted. Over 40% of the energy in this country is used by buildings, more than transportation, more than uh, factories. Our buildings are sieves. They've largely moved forward since the dark ages. You're going to see a revolution in this smart building movement combined with this thing called the Internet of Things where your home becomes smarter overnight You will have smart lights that go on and off. Uh, You will have smart windows that you can control with your uh, uh, smartphone. Keep an eye on a firm called View Glass. It is a transforming thing. So a lot going on in the smart building movement. But the other thing that to me is dramatic, it's not just this huge leapfrog to electric vehicles, which I promise you is happening faster than you might think. It's the jump after that to autonomous vehicles. And there's been this raging debate. Are they coming in 10 years or 15 or 20? And all of a sudden, Tesla went and put this car out last October that was essentially 50% self-driving now. 
You can buy one this afternoon. And to give you an example, two employees drove it from LA to New York, hands off the wheel, foot off the accelerator for 96% of the trip. It's like science fiction. And what that did is created a, a collective holy S word in the auto industry. And everybody said that plan about putting autonomous vehicles on the road in five or 10 years, uh, better move that up to three or four. That is going to create a big shift. It's by and large good for the planet, but it's going to create some seismic shift for our policymakers, insurers, and so on. And it doesn't text while it's driving. It doesn't drink whilst it's uh, <laughs> driving. It doesn't have an argument with a family member whilst it's uh, We'll be free driving. to do all those things. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't flip the bird. Or, yeah, all those things. Uh, Nicholas Stern, one way that a, a lot of people will feel climate impacts is on water. And I want to talk to you about the pricing of water and the impacts of water, whether it's too much floods or, or too little with droughts. So what do you see the output, the global prospect for water? Absolutely right there, Greg. Climate change is largely about water. Uh, It's about uh, extreme weather events and storms. It's about uh, desertification in some places. It's about sea level rise. It's about flooding. Um, It's about water in some, or the lack of it in some shape or form. Southern Europe, um, at not much above two degrees, could start to look like the Sahara Desert. Um, We don't know exactly where and how these things are going to happen, but the effects on water, um, either places being submerged or places turning into deserts or places battered by very heavy rainfall in a very compressed period of time, that's going to lead people to move, and that's going to... um, hundreds of millions, possibly billions, if we are reckless. We know that uh, we shouldn't be and we know how not to be, but if we were reckless and let that happen, you'd be seeing conflict on a massive scale with that number of people moving. And it would be about water. So it's very important to understand how the dangers uh, will happen through largely rewriting of our relationships with water. But also, there's a tremendous amount of water management that we're going to have to do anyway because of the climate changes that are happening and some which will go on happening, even if we act as we should very strongly. Um, London's on a floodplain, and it's not the only city. That m- many of our cities are where they are because they're near the sea or they're near the rivers. That's why they're there. So though our city management of water is going to have to be enormously uh, improved around the world, and we're going to have to invest in in doing that. Um, there are going to be some places which, uh, I mean, the stress on water in California is probably going to get a lot worse, not, not better. And uh, so management of the water that you've got is going to be extremely important. And part of that would have to be water pricing and, and so on. You, know, you, you let people use the world's scarcest resource for nothing. You know, I mean, it, it, it's not going to work um, if you don't have some way of allocating and saving that water much more carefully. So all the way from flood control to husbanding very carefully the water you've got. And there's so much that we know we can do. I mean, water harvesting is extremely important. Just saving the water you've got, just run it into a butt and, uh, and use it. And um, designing your um, use of land so that, uh, for example, in the UK, we've had terrible floods and it's 
of course, large measure to do with climate change, but it's also because the way in which we've managed our land up in the hills in a way so that they don't absorb and they're not the sponge that they could be. So there's so many dimensions to water control, looking after the, uh, the forests and so on, <coughs> up the hills, water harvesting, uh, wherever, flood control, pricing water properly. You know, it's mad that you grow rice in California. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't understand uh, why you do it. Um, because you, you use something that's extremely valuable to make something that's not very valuable. It doesn't make any sense. Or it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, Greg. No, it's, it, and um, there's so much we can do to manage it much better. Steve Wesley on the wa- future of water in California. Well, there's three steps here. First, we've come to realize that you can produce energy in almost any part of the planet. It may be solar, it may be wind, it may be gas, but you can create energy where you want. You can't create water out of thin air. And what we're realizing is the planet gets warmer is that these ice caps in the mountains, whether it's the Himalayas, which serves about 3 billion people, or the Andes, or the Rockies, as these things slowly melt and there's less, uh, we've got to get smarter. And that means three things. Number one, we've got to get smart about conservation. And that means social behavior software and just saving more. Second step is we need to do a better job with capture and storage. So long before you do 44-foot tunnels and massive projects, we need more storage. And then the third thing is recycling. And that's going to mean gray water use, and it's going to mean municipal recycling. And people say, did he just say we're going to have to drink water that people have peed in? And the answer is yes. Get used to it. You will see recycling. It's part of the new future if we're smart We'll do a much better job with conservation and with storage, and we can avoid the expensive step of recycling, but we're probably looking at a world with all three. Leslie Stahl did it on 60 Minutes, so I think the rest of us can do it. Uh, We're talking about climate change and clean energy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Steve Wesley, former board member at Tesla and former controller of California, and Nicholas Stern, former chief economist at the World Bank and climate expert. He keeps saying former, do you know that? There's quite a lot of things we do at the moment, you know. <laughs> Your current title is so long. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, the, I want to go to our audience questions in a minute, but first going to ask each of you briefly, what gives you hope and fear? Nick Stern, about climate. Paris Agreement gave me hope, not only because 195 countries got together to agree on something tough but very valuable, but also because it was founded on an understanding of how attractive the different way of doing things could be and was becoming. What makes me fearful is how slowly that process is moving, even though it's picking up and accelerating. The next 20 years are absolutely decisive. We've got very little headroom on greenhouse gases if we're to hold uh, temperatures to uh, levels which are not uh, dangerous. And we will be building infrastructure around the world in the next 20 years. We'll be adding one and a half to two times of the infrastructure that we've already got. And if we do that badly, lock in dirty, unsustainable infrastructure, any chance of holding to two degrees will be absolutely gone. So tremendous excitement 
as to what we can do. We can see we can do it now and how attractive it will be, but worry that we'll dither and delay. And if that dithering and delay goes on for 10, 15, 20 years, we'll be in very difficult circumstances. Steve Wesley, hope and fear. Yeah, let me start with the fear part. I, I used to be in elective office, and gee whiz, I'm fearful of elected officials having been one. They just take a long time, and you worry about hard-to-manage countries like India. Can they move off coal quickly enough to save this planet we all share? What gives me hope is that we're seeing these dramatic breakthroughs in technologies from electric vehicles to uh, uh, efficiencies in solar. The stuff we're seeing is dramatic and it is cost competitive. There is no reason not to move into this greener new world. But what really gives me hope are millennials because they get it. They want a smaller footprint. They're used to measuring everything and they are by and large consumers that are making smarter decisions than their parents ever did. That gives me hope. Let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you for this great discussion. Peter Joseph with Citizens Climate Lobby. Carbon pricing. I was in Paris and heard Jim Hansen call the whole COP21 thing a fraud because there was no outcome that produced a global carbon price. I was here right before COP21 and heard Christiana Figueres say carbon pricing would not be on the menu. On day one of COP21, the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition was launched. Please, can we discuss how do we get from here to there, decarbonizing, without putting a price on carbon, and how do we do that? Thank Thanks. you. Nicholas Stern. Um, carbon pricing is very important, but it's not the only weapon in the armory. You can get uh, very quick movement by regulation, efficiency, standards, uh, safety standards, for example, on the use of, of coal, and uh, enormous potential in research and development and innovation, and they support each other. So I'm a huge admirer of, of Jim, but I don't believe that there's just one single shot on this, and that if we lose on that one, we're bound to lose overall. We should be doing all those things uh, uh, together, and I don't believe Paris was a fraud. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is John Balbeck, and I'm president of the Global Innovation Exchange, which is a, a mini NASDAQ for climate solutions. And my question is about finance, and, and I know that the, the, both of your minds um, are fantastic on this. When, when we look at the dollar amounts needed to keep us at or below 2 degrees um, Celsius, it, the numbers I've seen are $16 trillion to uh, $20 trillion, call it, over the next... 10 years, I guess. First, do you, do you resonate with that number? And absent the governments forcing the markets in some fashion, how, how do you see uh, that, that amount of capital moving within a 10-year time frame? Thank you. Thank Steve, you. where's the money going to come from? A lot of number, big, trillion. Like... Now, look, uh, the big number doesn't bother me. Here's why. Two points. First, consumers make choices all the time. And the good news here is that renewables are largely reaching cost parity with carbon-based solutions. And this new millennial marketplace, and frankly, their parents as well, are going to say, given a choice, if it's at cost parity, I'll take the cleaner fuel. And again, cost of oil goes up and down. Cost of renewables only goes down. That's a pretty straightforward choice. Point two, there's been no charge or tax on carbon or pollution. 
Elon Musk said yesterday, it's like throwing your garbage in the road and not having to pay for it. That's essentially what we're doing in the air. Today, in this millennial world, it's easy to measure everything. There will be a cost on carbon. I don't know whether it's two years, four years, six years. We're measuring it. It's becoming a big deal. Even in China, they now know. They used to sort of sweep it under the rug, but the amount of pollution there is not sustainable. It leads to social unrest. The Chinese understand this, and that's why even in China, they're cutting back on coal production. The world's heading in the right direction. We just need to help get it there sooner and don't underestimate the role California can play in doing that. Steve Wesley is a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. Welcome. Hi, my name is Michelina Johnson. I'm a junior at UC Berkeley. Thank you for coming. Uh, my question is directed toward Mr. Wesley. I'm wondering how California will afford the new water projects and if it will consider hydroelectricity a form of clean alternative energy. So hydroelectricity is absolutely a form of clean alternative energy. We have a lot of it. In fact, we depend on it. The big rub is what happens if we have another 10 or 20 years of drought, then we've got to move to plan B quickly. Again, I start with storage. It is hard to build these enormous tunnels up and down the state. And by the way, they use a huge amount of energy. Storage, uh, conservation is where you start. And then uh, storage and capture. We need to start on that now. Fabulous to see students from Berkeley here. Thank you. Uh, welcome. Hi, my name's Catherine. I work at a shared electric vehicle startup called Evercar in the city. And I was just wondering, I loved hearing your talk about the race in electric vehicles. I was wondering if both in the U.S. and elsewhere, if we're seeing a race in the proliferation of charging stations, and if charging stations currently will be able to handle the influx of people buying electric vehicles, and what are the challenges that exist there? I, I love this question. Go Bears. Three points. First, the best news of all here is not just that there's a proliferation now of electric charging stations. I've had an electric car for three or four years. When I first had it, there weren't so many around. It was a bit inconvenient. That issue has largely gone away. It's improving. It is improving a lot. By the way, there are websites you can go to on your car, and they will not only say, hey, you can plug in here or there. There's some that will say, come to my house, and you can charge in my garage, and I'll give you a cup of coffee. It is dramatic. But here's the other thing that I think is so interesting. In my generation, a lot of us, we'd count down the days till we were 16 to get a car, our own car. Americans had to have a car. That's changing. The new generation knows better. They're willing to share cars. That's the way of the future. 20, 25 years from now, people will be saying, who's going to want to own a car? That's a big shift. I talked to someone at Ford Motor Company recently. They're, they've done a, a reform on their finance arm where four people can now buy a car together. Yeah. They could, yeah. like car, that's really car sharing when four people buy it. Figure out the finances of that. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. Hello, gentlemen. I'm Jody Cardo. I've worked in the energy mm-hmm. industry for a number of years, and I appreciate all the attention that these electric cars are getting, but there's still two questions that I'm grappling with as a hopefully a responsible citizen, is where are all those batteries going to go in the future? And how are we going to know where to improve our infrastructure because we don't know necessarily where everyone's going to be buying those electric cars to plug them in? And so those are two questions I have not yet heard a good answers to. Steve Wesley, I hear that one a lot. I own an electric vehicle. What about the batteries? What about the batteries? I hear that a lot. Yeah. So look, <clears throat> first, batteries are not inherently clean. You need to be very careful with batteries. Two, we're getting a lot better at recycling batteries. Three, what I find very interesting is there's a two-step life cycle for batteries. You can use them in cars, 
but as they begin to diminish their power uh, storage capacity, you can then use them in other capacities like storing electricity in solar and wind. So we're getting better at this life cycle. And because we've had batteries and PCs for a long time, the state of the art is good, but it can get a lot better. We think some bright new entrepreneurs, maybe someone here will come up with the next great battery recycling technology. We're very interesting because you're going to see a lot of batteries on this planet. We're talking about climate and new energy with Steve Wesley, the venture investor, and economist Nicholas Stern. Let's go to our next question on Climate One. Hi, my name is Wayne. I'm with uh, 350.org. Um, I'm very encouraged by listening to both of you, particularly you, Steve, and you also, Nick. Uh, I am concerned about how little time there is left for us to get off of carbon. Uh, there's a website, trillionthton.org, which basically tracks how, many carb- how much carbon dioxide we've added into the atmosphere. Roughly 600 gigatons up to now, and roughly 1,000 gigatons is all we can add, and after that, we have to go to zero carbon. So... How can we do this quicker? How can we get the sense of urgency that I heard Christina Figueres talk about on on, uh, Living on Earth recently? Nicholas Stern, the urgency. You're absolutely right that the urgency is intense. Uh, We have to make virtually all our infrastructure from now on um, almost entirely clean and uh, sustainable. Uh, The good news is that we know how to do that. Um, We're going to have to do that very quickly um, with things that we know. We're going to have to invest strongly in research and development to develop others. And we're going to have to look after our sinks much better than we do. There are sources of um, greenhouse gas emissions and there are sinks for greenhouse gas emissions. And the best sinks are in the forests and in the land. And rehabilitating land gives you uh, more land to grow food and it gives you a place to store carbon so as well as thinking very quickly now about how to bring down our emissions very quickly we have to invest in and look after the the sinks the land and the forests in particular one of the hottest areas in paris was a group of people the global landscapes forum people looking at soil taking carbon out of the air putting it at the soil managing yeah. lands differently a so, lot yeah. of a lot of optimism yeah. there and let's go to our next the reason question. the soil is black is the carbon right? i'm tony bernhardt from e2 Lord Stern, you did pioneering work on the social cost of carbon. Can you tell us what your latest thinking is on what the cost of carbon needs to be? Um, I can tell you what's much too low, and that's the uh, price of carbon you use in the United States of uh, $35 a tonne, or roughly, of uh, CO2. Um, because the models that get to that level leave out most of the uh, big costs associated with climate change in terms of severe weather events and uh, so on. I I think that you have to think of a path that gets fairly quickly up to $50 and then maybe in 15 years or so goes up to $100. They've already got in Sweden a price of uh, carbon dioxide well above $100 uh, a ton, and that's one of the best-performing economies in, uh, in the world. I want to wrap up briefly by asking you quickly what you do to minimize your own carbon and what an average person can do to minimize theirs. Nicholas Stern. Um, I'm, I'm not as good at that as I should be, but um, I use uh, ground source uh, heat pump and renewable energy, so all the electricity and all the heating in, in my house is, uh, is renewable. Steve Wesley? We have solar, electric cars. It's not enough. We're going to double down. 
and uh, I just need to get my daughter to take shorter showers, and we'll be there. <laughs> I have to end it there. Steve Wesley is a venture capitalist, head of the Wesley Group, and Nicholas Stern is chair of the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. I'd like to thank our audience in the room at the Commonwealth Club and online in our, and let's thank our... I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.